Hello and welcome to the Heart of the Piano podcast where we are, as always, exploring the world of music. And uh, my friend Cheryl is with us again today. Hi, Cheryl. Hello. And um, we're very lucky to have her. Uh, it's quite the social butterfly. <laughs> and we've been uh, meaning to do another one of these for ages. But you're always so busy. So uh, thanks very much for, for your time. It's uh, really appreciated. And we're at Foresides today because Foresides are sponsoring this podcast. They have superb practice rooms. We're in the practice room with their beautiful grand piano. It sounds really, really lovely in this room. Really nice acoustics. So they're an excellent family-run music store in the centre of Manchester. They do loads and loads of pianos. The pianos here are absolutely superb, but they also do sheet music and guitars and uh, digital pianos and uh, everything that you, that you could need and, and all the other instruments, wind instruments. Very, very nice warm atmosphere. I really enjoy teaching here. I'm, I'm teaching my students here at the moment. Very nice, friendly atmosphere, very warm. They also have concerts here, but basically, yeah, I like that it's uh, the history of it. It's got a very, very long history. Basically, a very nice place to do business with and uh, thank you very much for sides for sponsoring us so yeah i thought that for this episode uh because i haven't had a lot of time to prepare for this one i thought that it would be really good to consolidate uh some of the recent episodes that i've done which are basically the four most important psychological skills you need to practice at the piano to be deeply musical i've been basically refining these for some time and yeah, it's interesting because actually just driving over here to, to Manchester, I was listening to one of the really, really old episodes. Yeah, I was listening to episode 11 from years ago that I did with Andy. And this episode was uh, The Most Common Mistakes Made by Non-Professional Pianists, Part 3. And um, I just thought that the way that I teach... I feel has come on in such a long way since then, you know, really thinking about uh, and refining a lot of the psychological techniques that I use, which I think are, are reasonably cutting edge in many ways. And then I went back and listened to this episode driving over and it surprised me actually all the, uh, all the things that we're about to talk about the, the, that I've done in recent podcast episodes, the four most important psychological skills. I was already talking about <laughs> back in episode 11, pretty clearly, actually, I think. And I recommend that people go back and listen to that one. I'll, uh, there are always show notes um, on heartofthepiano.com. Um, sometimes they show up. Uh, I, I, when I listen to podcasts on Spotify, the, um, the show notes show up there as well. But basically, it's episode 11. But I'm going to go through the four as I've put them recently, the four most important psychological skills you need to practice at the piano. Now, these will probably change for me over the years. This is what I consider right now to be the most important psychological skills. Other people may disagree, but this is what I find most useful uh, in my teaching. So let me just sum them up very, very briefly for people who haven't listened to them, although I do really, really recommend them. And then uh, me and Cheryl are going to look at basically consolidating all the information from those and how we actually use those in a practical way with some pieces that, that, that Cheryl has brought. So basically, the number one psychological skill you need to practice at the, to be, at the piano to be deeply musical is to look for what there is to love in every moment. Now, when, when I look back at episode 11, Most Common Mistakes Made by Non-Professional Pianists, in that year, I was saying that the most important skill you need to practice at the piano like, is basically to not be concentrating. 
Now, this sort of really now spills over into the number two psychological skill. But right now, I truly believe... Okay, scrap what I said in episode 11. The number one most important skill, the highest priority one, is in every moment look for what there is to love. Number two psychological skill is what I called magic wand practicing or magic spell practicing. I'll sum this up briefly, but I do recommend that it's worth going back and listening to that episode, which is only quite recently. Uh, Let me just have a quick look. I think that was episode 29. So um, magic spell, magic wand practicing is you imagine that somebody else has waved a magic wand, cast a magic spell, clicked their fingers and bang, you are now instantly the most amazing pianist ever. You, You don't have to do anything, just instantly your fingers just move for you and you can play amazingly. You you visualize this very deeply, strongly before you do anything. You close your eyes, you imagine what it would be like to play the piece that, that you want to play as if someone has cast a magic spell. And uh, there are so many reasons for this. I go into this um, uh, on that podcast episode. Uh, Some of the most common mistakes that my adult students do is they then put a lot of effort and striving into doing that. And that's defeating the whole point of it. So, you know, a lot of people understand logically how being relaxed will help you to become a better musician. But it's very difficult to just relax. (laughs) You know, what's it like when you say to someone, relax, just relax, but do they relax? No. So like the the way that I find works when I'm coaching people is, uh, and, and it often takes a while to happen. And this is like a skill that you can practice. But the more that you can imagine that somebody has cast a magic spell, you can play, you don't have to do anything. That's that's how you stay relaxed. You don't have to put the effort in. So it's it's like a practice of imagination. You have to think like a five-year-old. You know, a five-year-old can imagine these kinds of things. Um, sometimes adults find it trickier. Anyway, so that's number two. The number three psychological skill you need to practice at the piano to be deeply musical is basically the art and practice of always feeling good enough. This is something you can practice it's not just a thing to know or a thing you know you, 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 you should do, but it is actually a practicable skill. One way of looking at this, which I didn't really talk about, um, in, um, uh, and this was in episode 31, so this is the number three skill, always good enough. I didn't really sort of talk about the fact that this is essentially confidence, except there are some subtle distinctions between what some people think of as confidence and being good enough but i'll i'll come to that a little bit later but when i think of this skill of always feeling good enough it's a felt sense experience in the body it's not like um uh, an affirmation that was the word i was looking for several episodes ago and i was talking and i was trying to search for a word yes it's not just a, an affirmation that you say to yourself over and over that that doesn't really work this is something that you explore in your body what does it feel like when you feel good enough what does it feel like when you don't feel good enough because this is something that i do all the time when i'm learning and practicing i'm very very curious about those sensations and those sensations and the awareness of those sensations helps me to cultivate the best conditions to learn in the optimal way and to be able to perform under pressure in ways that i enjoy 
And then the number four psychological skill that you need to practice at the piano to be deeply musical is that every five, in the beginning, every five, ten minutes as you practice, change the focus of your awareness. This is quite a, a complicated one, perhaps. And I was just chatting to Cheryl about it because Cheryl hasn't listened <laughs> to, to the last um, uh, uh, the few podcast episodes because uh, I forgot to, to mention that it might be a good idea uh, to do that. So that's completely my fault. But then that, that means that this episode is, is possibly quite helpful for people who've already listened to, to the previous four podcast episodes. And, and then now I'm just basically going to go over it again, explain it again. I think it's going to be useful. But basically, this number four psychological skill that I was just demonstrating to, to Cheryl is that whenever we're playing at the piano, there are like an infinite number of things that we can be aware of as we play. And not like, as, as, as Cheryl suggested, um, quite, quite sensibly, quite understandably, you mean like what I'm having for tea. That, that's, <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> that's not what I mean. Um, I mean that... There are so many musical elements to be aware of as we play. And I think that wh where a lot of my students get lost when they are practicing and learning a new piece is that they think that, well, well, they don't even think about it. It's just like taken as a given that you just want to play the right notes. And so the focus is, am I playing the right notes? This is not good um, for reasons that, um, go, go and listen to episode number 32, uh, the number four psychological uh, skill, and uh, I'll demonstrate all the all the different kinds of areas, but we will talk about it more in this episode. So, for example, if I'm thinking about playing a piece of music, a very common problem that I've been doing with a lot of my students just, just in the last week is trying to coach them into listening much more to just the melody as they play. And so there are some pieces that have very complicated accompaniments. Um, Chopin can have this kind of thing. And so um, most of the time, we really want to focus on the melody and not all the millions of notes that are sort of intricately in, in the background. Um, otherwise, we're just hit with a wall of notes. Basically, the way that I try and put this, and I may not have said this actually in the, the number four um, psychological skill episode, is that when we perform we basically want to be aware of the things that we want our audience to be aware of. So I use this analogy sometimes. We are like magicians. And when you think about how a magician pulls off their tricks, usually a magi one of the strongest skills that a magician has, not that I'm a ma magician, I've never done it, but, <laughs> but I'm aware of the, the, the fact that one of the most important skills that a magician has is the skill and practiced ability to direct their audience's attention to the places where they want their audience's attention and not to where they're palming something or pulling something out of their sleeve or hiding something. They're very good at directing people's awareness. We are magicians. When we are playing, we're going, this is where I want your awareness. I want your awareness on the melody here. I want your awareness on how beautiful this moment is here. Um, you know, don't listen to all these millions of, of notes here in the background. And I, and I have demonstrated this in that episode, if you go and listen to that. Really, I would say that the better we get as performers, and as you progress up through the very advanced diplomas, and as we become more and more professional as musicians, and, and even if we're not professional, the, the better that an amateur becomes, 
the most important skill that, that really takes someone to that next level is the ability to perform in a way that the audience hears, ah, this is what I'm supposed to be listening to. This is the important thing. We're, we're basically, our job when we play music is to signpost this is the important thing. This is what I want you to listen to. Now, the way that we do that is not mechanically by just bashing something out. Literally, what we pay attention to is what our audience pays attention to. And there's all kinds of studies as well where performers are hooked up to um, uh, things that measure brain waves. Audiences are hooked up to things that measure brain waves. And um, what happens very commonly is that brain waves synchronize. Um, so this shows that on quite a deep level, an audience and a performer synchronizes even to the level of brainwaves and even to bodily movements and heart rate. It's, it's very, very deep. So if, if we are just like, oh, here are the notes um, when, when we're playing and that's all we're aware of, that's all an audience is going to hear. That's why this is so important. Now, like as, as we'll demonstrate, there are so many ways that we can do all this kind of thing. And, um, you know, this is why there's meditation and mindfulness, because these are habits of the mind. What we are habitually used to paying attention to at the piano as we practice is what is going to happen as we perform, except with added adrenaline. So it's it's going to be even harder to control. So, you know, we need to control these things as we um, practice. But this is a very positive thing because we can practice joy, love, passion, curiosity, because the more we focus on those things, the more our audience is going to love feel the passion, be curious, enjoy those things, feel the emotions. And, you know, people tell me they really enjoy my playing. And I think a lot of the reason why people really enjoy my playing is because I practice being aware of those qualities so that when I perform, even under pressure, I still am performing, focusing on the love, focusing on the emotions. And people feel that. But if I don't practice that, it's not just suddenly going to magically happen in a performance. Anyway, you've sat there very patiently, Cheryl. No, not at all. It was good. <laughs> so, um, so, yes, Cheryl's brought a couple of pieces to, to look at. And, um, and, and also, I'm not expecting these pieces to be in any way ready to perform under pressure. This is just basically, let's see what pieces you're learning and let's see how we can apply some of the things that, that we've done previously. Um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit uh, uh, longer. It's funny because I was listening back to um, episode 11 on my way here, which is this one that I did with Andy years ago. And it was funny because it, it, it's like exactly the same structure as the one that I wanted to do today. I was like, oh, wow. Some of you may know, like long-term listeners who've already listened to the episodes that I've done with Cheryl, we did two really, really good sessions that, that I thought went really quite well where um uh, and one of them was looking at some chopin with cheryl and then the other one was looking at a uh, self-determination theory and i could tell that the cheryl was really getting it like that there were real improvements and i could really feel um the musicality just being really unlocked in a very deep way um and then the next time i saw cheryl after that <laughs> i was like so how how have all those things been going in your practice and in your playing and yeah, what what did you say, Cheryl? <laughs> I haven't done them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. I forget. You just forget. You, 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 it's so easy to go back to old habits, right? Yeah. It's bad. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really bad. But it's just something I sit down. It's not completely all gone. Um, but I think a lot of there's so much information that you forget. 
So really, I need to like bullet point things down, have them stuck on my piano, and then remind remind me. It's more that it's not that I'm opposed to doing it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's funny because like you know, for anyone who listens back to to episode eleven, that's exactly how I started the episode off with Andy. It's like, yeah, it's been frustrating, hasn't it? Because like every time that that we do this stuff, I can hear the differences instantly in your mm. playing. You sound amazing, and then. Um, it, it just doesn't happen at all in, in the practicing. And, it, and, and as I was saying to Andy in that episode, it's not just you, it's everybody. Everyone has this problem. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. So I thought it would be quite interesting in this particular episode to use these four psychological skills and also to sort of look back on all the things that, that we were learning from the previous episodes, particularly the ones that I did with Cheryl, and go, how can we actually do these in a practical way when we're not being coached and guided by someone and just make it an inherent part of our practice because you know I, I all the people who I teach you know we have very exciting breakthroughs and and it's always you know really exciting looking at all of this stuff but the hardest thing is always the actual putting it into practice away from the lessons yes one thing that I suggested uh, with Andy is like write some of these points down on post-it notes and just literally stick it on the piano yeah i know that you haven't listened to the the four most important psychological skills and that's completely my own fault and uh, before this episode started i did actually just sort of um, go through them in a little bit more detail uh, with cheryl but what are your thoughts on these um do any of these in particular jump out at you uh, yeah what, what do you think yeah so uh, remember, so the first one was um find what you love yeah. Yes. So this one is always a work in progress. So it, it highly depends on what piece I'm playing. So at the moment, I have Elegy open out in front of me. The, the, the Rachmaninoff. The Rachmaninoff. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, the Rachmaninoff. And um, I think there's maybe a couple of points, maybe a couple of bars that I don't love just because they are so hard. <laughs> but the rest of it, I love it. And like every note I hit, I'm like, oh, it's amazing. This is amazing. But then there are other pieces that I might not be quite so enamored with. And I'll just say blanket classical Yes. Is, is not my favorite, um, not my go-to kind of thing. And so finding what there is to love in that, I find ridiculously hard. I just feel like someone's forcing me to do this and I don't want to do this. And <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah. There's, there's yeah. a giant continuum of looking for what there is to love. And, uh, and I think one way of looking at it can be we usually, um, and, and I think, you know, a, a lot of this podcast is directed mostly at adult amateur pianists, although, you know, I'm hoping there's going to be a wider uh, uh, listeners. But um, yes, we usually only play the pieces that we love, um, although there's going to be a lot of people playing exam pieces. Um, so yes, on one level, look for what there is to love can basically mean work on figuring out how to love more the bits you don't love um, and that can be one way of looking at this the way that I encourage everyone to look at this number one psychological skill of look for what there is to love in every single moment is that no matter how much you think you love it you can love every single minute moment much more than you or than you realize you can like the very first note you play, I think there are infinite levels of love. I work on this sometimes in my own playing. 
And although I know this is important and I think I'm always working on this, sometimes I then think, no, come on, come on, Bob, let's actually look properly at this bar. And then I realize, oh, I didn't even realize how much there is to love here. And I think that I encourage people to, to watch masterclasses on YouTube by the really, really top-notch teachers and performers. Um, I'm always surprised how many of my students don't watch masterclasses. Um, and, you know, when I look at masterclasses by my favorite pianist, I think sometimes many people are struck by you have these amazing pianists already who are being taught, who are already professionals, and these master pianists come along and, and teach at ridiculously high levels and just point out at an even higher level of what the professionals are doing. And I think in many ways, what they are doing is they're like, you, yeah, you know, you're playing well, but oh my God, pay attention to this and how much more, even more lovable and beautiful this thing here could be. This is really the, the better we get and the, and the better you want to be. It's really about the tiny, subtle nuances that, that, Every single moment and note and bar and section of any piece, it can be infinitely lovable. Um, and this is a really useful habit to to uh, go into. Not just like, oh yeah, I don't like that bit so much, but the, but the, there's an infinite well of lovability in every single moment. And the deeper you go into that well, the better you'll play. <laughs> so any other thoughts on those for... Um, so the second was this magic wand idea. Yes. That's an interesting one because I hadn't really... That one is that one makes the least amount of sense to me out of the four. Mm -hmm. um, maybe because I've heard it now as an adult, I don't know. I, I, kinda, I understand this sort of feeling of effortlessness. There's other things I do in my life where I, I get that. Mm. But with the piano, there's always... Unless it's something that is, you know, like... Maybe it's like Old MacDonald had a farm or something. Maybe I could play that effortlessly kind of thing. <laughs> Should be able to by now, right? Um, but any kind of, you know, a piece that has a standard to it, then it's always, there's always going to be an element of, oh, this is, this is causing me some, you know, I need to work hard. Mm. So this effortless feeling just goes out the window. Mm. So this one I'm really struggling with, like how. It's, it's a continuum. And um, like I explained to a lot of my students, hopefully, hopefully I used this analogy in the episode where I talked about magic wand practice. But it's really like for me, it's important as a compass heading. So even if when you perform, you don't fully realize this sense of absolute magic wand effortlessness. Um, the moment that you sit down and start learning a new piece or you are practicing... I think it's important that you are orientating yourself in that direction. And as I describe magic wand practice, you, you close your eyes, you imagine what it would feel like to play the piece, the passage, whatever it is you're about to work on. And you imagine what it would feel like in your body, in your bones, in, in every part of you, that someone's just waved the magic wand, clicked their fingers, you can play without any effort. And then, then you think to yourself, right, I'm now back in reality. What's the number one thing that I could do in this moment that will take me in that direction? And then you don't beat yourself up if you can't actually do it in that way. The important thing is that you are moving in that direction, that that is your goal. That's your compass heading. Because I think... Um, uh, what most of my students do, like I was saying to Cheryl just before, is like busy work with the fingers 
um, thinking that if we just sit there and work really hard, that after a certain amount of time, we'll arrive. But I'm afraid it just doesn't work like that. We, we move in the direction that we're imagining. And if we're imagining effortless playing, we're more likely to move in that direction, even if we don't fully ultimately arrive in where we are truly as if someone has cast a magic spell. Um, you know, I've got to say that actually when I'm playing, when I'm performing, most of what I'm playing is sort of at pretty much that magic spell level. But yeah, the, the harder the piece of music is, that there will be moments where it isn't because sometimes pieces are right at the edge of my ability. I've gone back at the moment to, to relearning the Rachmaninoff second sonata. It will take me years to get to that level of magic oneness it's it's a lot of it is it's just too difficult but the important thing is that when i sit down and practice it i'm not just sitting down and and doing busy work and just like just grinding away i'm purposefully sitting down and going how can i make this feel easy the reason why magic wand i feel is useful for my students is that a lot of um, most of my adults are like um, feel very stuck and addicted, addicted to this sense that even when we're trying to figure out how to practice in an effortless Zen way, there's like a right. How do I do that? And and we cling onto how we try and get that state of mind. Um, there's always effort and striving. Whereas uh, this sort of thinking about magic wand and someone else just clicking in, we no longer have responsibility for it. And we truly imagine that. That's the closest that I think many of my students have come to this this Zen state of mind of imagining the level of effortless non doing of, of of being in in a in a Zen sort of state of flow. Something interesting as well is like actually if you study um, the uh, psychological uh, definition of flow as uh, invented by Csikszentmihalyi, the, the psychologist. Uh, and he's basically studied flow states and, and some of the definitions. Flow states happen most when there's an optimum level of challenge. If we're not really challenged, it's, diff- it's more difficult actually for people to reach a flow state. So challenge can be really useful. But another thing that defines a flow state is actually a feeling of suddenly effortlessness, that it just happens. It just, everything just flows through you. But it's interesting that there also needs to be a, 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 an optimum level of challenge. <laughs> so it's, it, uh, and it's, it's a real tightrope, you know, that, that feeling of, of challenge. Now, here's something else that I don't think I spoke about at all in that episode number two, um, psychological skill. It's not episode number two, but, but it's the, the episode with the number two psychological skill that you need. Um, I was just looking yesterday on the internet at the, the people who study the psychological things that lead to choking as sports psychologists call it when people choke under pressure i think most sports psychologists really define choking as what happens when you're trying to do something that has a certain level of automatic automaticity is is that the, the the right word so it's like a certain level of muscle memory it's a certain level of the body knows how to do this and then under pressure we start trying to control it and that's when we choke. Now, what is magic one practice? It's letting go of that, that trying to control it. So what I'm trying to get people to imagine is the antithesis of choking. It's like, imagine that someone's cast a magic spell and 
and it just all flows. You're not controlling it. That's the most important thing about it. So what I'm suggesting is that this is something you inherently practice, that every single time you sit down and practice, you visualize what would it feel like if I could do this without any feeling of control. Now, surely that just follows that if that is the thing we are mentally practicing, that under pressure when it's tempting to actually start going, I need to control what I'm doing. If we've already practiced magic wand practicing, we're less likely to choke. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, that's, yeah. When you're, when, when you're about to go and perform, like say at the meetups, for example, mm. and you start thinking about how you play, play the piece. Yes. That's when it all goes wrong. Absolutely. Kind of thing. And you're like, why am I thinking about it? I never think about it before. I never think about playing the piece before I go and play it, apart from when I'm about yes. to go and perform it, yes. which just makes your brain go, uh, yeah, just your nerves go all over the place. Yes. And you sit down and you don't know where middle C is anymore. And you just like, what is this piece? <laughs> and it all goes out the window. And it's, yes. yeah, yeah. So if we are always thinking about, what would it be like if I just sat down and I didn't have to do anything and it flowed through my fingers, we're way more likely to be able to enter that state when we're performing rather than suddenly trying to control it and choke. Yeah. Um, no, that's, it's interesting that that's a, that to put it in the frame that it's a practicable skill. Totally. Yeah, because you don't really think about that. Like no one, I, I certainly have never thought about it in that way before really, that you could practice not feeling... Mm. like you're about to choke kind of thing or mm. practice that practice feeling like you that you're in that sort of autonomous kind of state yes yeah because you know this is again well you know one of the reasons why some monks spend literally all their lives learning meditation and you know there's so much academic literature showing so much evidence um, uh, of the benefits of, of meditation even just 10 minutes a day for for two or three months is that the way that we, if we practice what we pay attention to, even for 10 minutes a day for three months, it can literally change the structure of our brains and change um, a whole load of how we do on psychological tests and measures of well-being. How we think is a practicable skill. And there's all kinds of things that, that show strong evidence for mm. this. So what did you think of the number three skill, which is the practice and again like it's interesting because this is another thing that people maybe don't realize how how much this is a thing that we can practice but this is the practice of we are always good enough oh god this is the hardest one i would say <laughs> this is the this is the hardest one um practicing that you're good enough <sighs> i mean I, I was just saying to you before i was in uh, london yesterday and um at euston station there's a piano and I was like, oh, I, I could go and play. And I was like, no, 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 because there's going to be somebody who can play the piano probably phenomenally somewhere in this station. I definitely don't feel like I'm good enough to play in front of them. So I didn't. And then the same when I got to Manchester Piccadilly. Um, I didn't play. Um, and I could have done. I had the time. Because um, I don't feel like I'm good enough to. <laughs> and I still feel like that every time I go to the meetups and, and things. And I'm just like, oh, no. Like, but I'm mm. so on on side with everybody else. So everybody else is good enough, just not me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, ex and that's what other people say back to me. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. did amazingly. And then they'll be like, oh, no, I wasn't, you know. Mm. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult. It's, it's, it's a very interesting one because I think that 
most I'm going to guess that for most people, the experience of not good enough or good enough is a, is a thought. It's a belief system. It's in the mind. Mm. But the deeper that I've gone into this and something that I've, I've intuitively done this all my life at my musical instruments, not in life, sadly, unfortunately, but more recently I've sort of started doing this in life. But somehow I stumbled into this when I, when I was quite young with instruments, like from the age of 12, is that there is a felt sense in the body of good enough and not good enough. And if you can catch it in the body, it doesn't have to trip over into the mind. Oh. So what does it feel like in the body, that felt sense of good enough and not good enough? Would you know? Have you? Yeah, yeah it, uh, for me at least, it almost feels like your insides are getting smaller. That, yeah. That kind of, it can, it, everything just gets really constricted and tight kind yeah. of thing. And you just go, oh, no. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a great that's a great description of it. Where? Oh, in my basically my core, my stomach, my heart. That, yes, that place. yes, 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 you yes. Know, all absolutely. of that just gone. Yeah. Yes. And then it, it it will go down into my hands as well. Like my hands will start kind of oh. a whole arms, body, everything. It will it will affect everywhere. Yes. Yeah. That's fantastic. Now now uh, I'm going to know that there's going to be a lot of people out there who are not yet aware of that. And I say not yet because you can be. It's just that you might not be yet. And um, it, our culture, I think, a lot of the time can really teach us and brainwash us to not be aware of our felt sense of these kinds of sensations. Our society, I think, kind of brainwashes us that we have to feel confident, that when we feel those things, you know, those inner core sensations, literally core sensations of not good enough, we have to plaster over them like a, a, an overconfidence. That's just, our Western society teaches. That's what you do. Yeah, I was. I, I, I'm, I'm going to try not to get political. I was going to talk about political figures, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I don't need to say anything. But I'm sure we can all think of people. About. I mean, there's many, but I'm sure we can all think of people who plaster over the feelings of insecurity with obvious overconfidence. Um, but also, I, I'm going to sort of say that almost every single adult man who I teach, almost every single one has issues feeling interoceptive sensations, particularly in the heart and, and stomach, you know, like basically emotions. I, I'm going to say that, that almost every single guy, uh, adult guy who I've taught, finds this challenging. Um, society teaches us we're not supposed to do this. Actually, you know, like I've spoken about this in previous episodes, that one of the most deeply, deeply, profoundly helpful experiences I ever had when it came to playing the piano was when I went on a particular meditation retreat that was called Just Sit. And I didn't realize just how this literally was just sit. Now, most meditation retreats have some level of, you know, teaching you skills. And now it's a bit difficult. It's, it's paradoxical because it, you actually needed skill to do this. But fundamentally, the, the gist of it was you meditated, you just sat and you didn't even try to meditate. You didn't try to do anything. You just sat. You, you didn't try to do anything other than just sit. Now, it's actually a bit more kind of involved in that. But but fundamentally, you are. What I found was that after a, a deep, deep week of that, I got to a level deep inside myself, 
And I realized just how much of me was like, I have to be things. I have to be things. I've got to be this in order to be good enough in the world. It's basically getting right down to deep, deep layers of not good enough that I was never even aware of, that I have to do things in order to feel good enough um, in life. We have all have this. We all have it. But it was just incredible just how deep I got, how many layers of the onion I managed to, to get through. And when I got home, I could suddenly play things that I'd never been able to play before, like Chopin, Opus 10, number two, just suddenly effortlessly flowed out. Um, I can't do that now. But, you know, it's just this deep level of my body was just so relaxed and deeply feeling that I didn't need to do anything to be a, just a valuable human being on the planet. And no matter how much we can intellectually sort of know no, you know, like really, I should be have value as a human being. We all deep inside our bodies, just because of life, parents, society, teachers, experiences, um, uh, other kids at school, whatever the hell it is, we we grow up internalizing some aspects of we're not good enough, and and in many ways, the most useful place to find those things, it's not in the mind, it's in the body. It's where we store those things in the body. And whatever we store in the body then becomes things in the mind. But if we can find them in the body, then they don't spill over into the mind. So so basically, in, in a nutshell, what I find really useful um, in a performance is, oh, there are these physical, the raw physical felt sense of what Cheryl was describing, that the heart starts to sort of have those feelings of constriction. The stomach has that. And I always have that when I perform because we're all human. I absolutely get those physical sensations anytime I perform. And people are very surprised that I have that because they go, you look so confident. But I get those physical sensations because I'm a human being. But I then don't react with thoughts and beliefs that then suddenly attach themselves to that. And so, like, one thing, I, I know that, that people are only listening to this, but if I just say to Cheryl, play, play some of the elegy, okay. and then I'm just going to describe what I'm saying. I want you to play, but I want you to feel and imagine the extreme sensation that you're absolutely not good enough, that people are watching you and judging you, and you're like, oh my God, I, I'm rubbish, I'm just absolutely not good enough. What what does your body feel and look like if you play in that state? <laughs> I don't need to play in that state. That state is already <laughs> here. Exaggerate it. Exaggerate it. No, it doesn't need to be exaggerated. <laughs> I'm sure I can play this anymore. Actually, I don't even know what I'm doing. Okay. And, and, now, and now imagine, imagine, this is back to magic wand practicing again. And I, and I suppose in a way this, this is sort of quite deeply linked. It's almost magic wand practice. Imagine now, not just that someone's clicked their fingers and that you can just play amazingly, but that you are amazing. And it doesn't matter if there's other people better than you. It doesn't matter if someone else could come along and go, well, that could be better, that could be better. It doesn't matter because you are good enough and there are the people who matter. The people who matter will like, oh, that's amazing. What Even if what you play doesn't sound like it, 
I want you to feel that in your body and imagine the feeling and exaggerate that and then play and then see what the difference is. It's too, doesn't matter it's what it so sounds like. It's so hard to do that. Doesn't actually. matter what it it's sounds like. It's really, really like. difficult to just this do is, it. You're just acting. Okay. Doesn't matter what it sounds like. Okay. Now, now already, already, it's obvious to anyone who's listening that it sounded better. It's obvious. That's how much of a, that's, that's why, that's how important this is. Because if we believe that we're not good enough, we play worse. It's, it's just, it's, it's obvious, right? But uh, describe to me, how, what were the differences in how you felt? Uh, it, that was actually really funny to do that. I would encourage <laughs> that people actually do that at home because the first time all I kept thinking of was, Oh my God, this is on the pot. This is on the podcast. Oh my God. I, I haven't played this piece in ages. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. The second time I was a bit like, right. I'm the best thing in the world. <laughs> but what happened was that it would come very, intermittently so there would be like one bit where i'd be like oh yeah i feel great and then the next day i'd be like oh again but then it would come back if i made my mind think yes believe in yourself believe in yourself yes it would come back so i think it's something that if you do practice it would be there a lot yeah more yeah, consistently yeah. but that's it's a it's a tough yes. one to learn now how sure. did it feel in your body the t- the differences between the your two your body my, my body second time relaxed right i just i just kind of went into i don't care yeah so so the second time yeah much more relaxed body. Now, I'm going to basically say the people who listen to especially all the early episodes uh, of this podcast, but one of the things that I say is like the hallmark of most amateurs who who play where, where I'm saying that there are better ways to play is that there's like a, a narrow focus, a very unhelpful narrow focus with the neck going forwards, with the shoulders hunching. That is basically... I, I think it's so clear to me that is what not good enough looks like and feels like. Not good enough is that state of narrow focus with the neck forwards and the, the, the over-focusing, the too much concentration. It literally comes from the bodily felt sense of not good enough. Um, and when we practice good enough, the body relaxes. And I think, you know, when, when you were reading the music, you, you were probably less in a, in a looking at the individual notes. I could hear, I could hear that you were aware of the phrase as a whole rather than thinking about every single note. All the things that I've spoken about on so many episodes of the podcast. Now, if we're stuck in a state of, oh my God, I'm not good enough, we can try and do all the things that I've spoken about, you know, being aware of the, the, the whole phrase. We can try and do the, the, um, the thing that I'm going to come to in a moment, the num- number four psychological skill but fundamentally if we're stuck in not good enough we're still going to get yanked back into narrow focus and and all these unhelpful things this is why it's so important and i'm so pleased that you demonstrated that just then it is practicable and it's not just the things that we do before we get up and perform it's too late you've already internalized all those habits in every moment that you've practiced and and you know a lot of people i think want magic bullet advice on how can i get up and practice without nerves. And there is an episode that I did ages ago on how to play without nerves. And my advice then is you have to practice this in every single moment, every moment of your practicing, all these things like you are good enough. You, you can't practice with all this kind of tension thinking because I think what a lot of people do is the one of the reasons why people practice stuck in this just I have to play all the correct notes, uh, everything is under pressure, is because I'm not good enough. Only when I'm playing all the correct notes 
at speed, then I'm good enough. It's too late by then. You've already internalized all those habits. You have to do it from the very first moment you touch the first note, the very first moment that you look at the piece. Anyway, at this point, because we're, we're going to run out of time soon, let's look at the number four psychological skill. Um, what did you think of that one, Cheryl? Do you remember what this it was? This is the awareness one. Yeah, right. every five, ten minutes, practice moving yeah. it somewhere else. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. This is probably the one that I have actually practiced the most, um, ah. actually, because this is what I remembered. <laughs> so it was that Beethoven piece, the second second movement of... With, the pathetic, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, and on your what you were talking about with the Chopin, with um, you want the melody to come out and you don't want to be hit by a wall of all of these notes that are going on underneath. Same sort of idea with this Beethoven piece. And so a lot of making sure my awareness is on the, the melody, keeping the left hand down, that has been huge. Mm. So I've, I've been doing this one a lot more, but not in all of the ways that you were suggesting about, yeah. about an hour ago to me. <laughs> yes. So things like, how does it feel? How do my, what are my fingers doing? What does the shape look like? Um, I feel like it. Yeah. How does it feel? Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. What does it feel like? And, uh, the tension release, what does my body feel like? How am I listening? What about the tone of the piano? Yes. I don't think of any of those things. Yes. Nowhere near enough. That must relate somehow to the sort of right brain, left brain. Um, in, in some ways it does. Uh, basically, the way that it relates is that the left brain hemisphere generally, and, and again, these are massive overgeneralizations, but I, I, these, these can be useful. So the left brain hemisphere tends to just get sucked and glued into one very narrow thing very compulsively. So to the left brain, it's very binary. It's like either I'm playing the correct notes or I'm not. So so the left brain, everything's black and white, literally, I guess, seeing as we're playing pianos. And uh, um, But but yeah, and um, and sometimes I do have students who, who just can't get past this point that, that um, a lot of performance nerves come from the fact of it has to be correct. And if it's not going to be correct, it's bad. And that causes a lot of problems with, with nerves. And to, to the left brain, everything has to be correct or it's not correct. And there's like a, a sheer compulsive over-focusing, not only on is it correct or not correct, but but the, the mind just sticks. We play a note and the eyes stay staring at that note after we've played it. And, and, we, and it's sort of, um, it's like tiny, isolated chunks of time that don't belong with other chunks of time that's how the left brain sees things to the left brain the entire world is a whole series of unconnected individual objects which is not musical to the right brain everything is an organic flow of a narrative of things that all flow into everything else and more to the point the right brain hemisphere is much more responsible for choosing where we place our awareness, what are we going to pay attention to? That's much more a right brain hemisphere thing. The left brain hemisphere just gets sucked into this thing, that thing, that thing, without really a lot of conscious control, which um, a lot of the time when I'm teaching my students, most of them don't even realize how most of the time when they play, whatever it is that they're paying attention to, they don't even know what it is. It's it's just compulsive. They don't even think about it. Um, what I suggest, and this is why this uh, psychological skill number four is so important, it's it's um, 
we want to be able to choose, to consciously choose and be aware of where our awareness is and not just have it wherever it is just randomly without having chosen it. Like I said before, being a performer is we are magicians. Uh, if a magician just practiced how they did their trick, but then like compulsively thinking about the secretive move that they were making everyone it would be so obvious to everyone where that was now as pianists we have to be aware of this we have to think about it um most um pretty much every single adult student that i teach has never really given thought to this but this is absolutely one of the most important things that will take your playing to the next level it's basically meditation it's mindfulness it's it's meta-awareness of of what we are aware of and choosing where it goes and something i wanted to say earlier on as, as well uh, uh, when you were saying before cheryl that, that oh you know you don't think of this as being something you can practice but you can practice it when people start to practice meditation it's incredibly difficult it's frustrating in the beginning you'll be lucky if in you know 10 minutes of meditating you can spend more than a few seconds keeping your mind where it's supposed to be which in most meditation is the breath but the thing is that every single time you remember and you go oh my god i'm thinking about this i'm thinking about that and you come back to the breath and before the example was um oh yes i suddenly realized i was stuck in not feeling good enough and then i i realized and then i i, I took my attention back to thinking no i'm i'm great i'm good enough Every single time we remember to do that, that is like when we're in the gym and that's the moment when we're lifting a weight, feeling the burn. That's when the brain gets better at it. So every single time that you realize, oh, the brain went off and did that, but I'm going to bring it back and do this instead. That is where the magic happens. So that's, that's the most brilliant moment. And the more that happens, it's not because you're rubbish at it. It's not something that should discourage you. That is you actually, that's when the brain is, is growing and getting better at it. Just like meditation, which 10 minutes a day, three months, measurable differences in brain scans. This can happen at the piano. One thing I think, which is why many students do not practice these things. When I was listening back to the episode that I did with Andy, I think um, we want to sit down and do the things that our ego feels we can do. And when we sit down and these four psychological skills are hard in that the moment we become aware of them, the ego goes, oh my God, I, I'm really bad at this. Part of the skill of all of these things, and I did talk at the end of the fourth skill, which is basically the awareness thing. Um, no, no, I didn't. Sorry, it was the the end of the. It was one. I think it was the end of the third skill, which is good enough. I spoke about the need for self compassion, and I started talking about all of the recent academic uh, work with self compassion. Um, it's really important when we're practicing all of these skills to allow ourselves to not be very good at them and to not uh, not be bothered that our ego feels immediately threatened by them because i think that when i talk about you, you know sometimes i teach adult amateurs who are at pretty high levels you know grade 8 diploma level uh Cheryl, you know your grade 8 level 
Um, except, yeah, you don't have so much this ego thing. This is something that particularly applies to men. I've, I've got to say that when I teach men, it's it's natural. Society, to, you know, teaches us the, the, these things. I think as men, our whole identities sort of revolve around our, our felt sense of competence. And again, you know, I spoke about this in the episode on self-determination theory. Anything that threatens our, self of, uh, our sense of competency is dangerous. And when we look at these for psychological skills, we realize we're not very competent at them straight away. And it's really important to then focus on the other elements of that self-determination thing, you know, that, that actually we have other psychological needs. It's okay if we're not competent at loving every single moment because it's something we can get better at. It's okay if everything feels difficult and, and we're not good at, you know, just closing our eyes and knowing that direction of, of effortlessness. It's, that's okay because we're just human. And the more we practice it, the better we'll get at it. So I think that maybe part of the reason why people, um, I tell this to people, they realize in the lesson, oh my God, this really works and they don't go off and do it. It threatens maybe the sense of competency because they go away and realize, oh my God, I, I'm not good at this. Men in particular find this. I don't know. Is, is that a factor with, with you, Cheryl, or maybe not so much? Honestly, I'd have forgetting. to write them down, okay. stick them on my piano, and then I'll let you know. But I think even if I did that, I would probably still be, I'd still look, I'd probably look at the list and go, uh, nah, <laughs> I'm not doing that today. I probably would, um, being totally honest. Yeah, I think so. So I think it would take a lot of discipline to be like, right, okay, I'm going to really try and put my brain into these four ways of thinking, you know, that kind of being very aware, but it's a lot of effort. And I think for a lot of people who are, you know, like myself, you know, you play piano as a hobby in addition to everything else that's going on in your life. And I think a lot of people are just like, oh, I just want to enjoy playing the piano. Even though they know that, and I'm, I'm exactly uh, the same, uh, even though we know that's what's going to get us to the place we want to be and where and how we want to be playing. And, how, and as soon as you're sat at a meetup group or a performance, you're about to go up, you're sat there thinking, I wish I did all of that work and I haven't done any of it. Um, yeah, so. Mm. These are all excellent points. And I think that this is where I think that drawing a direct comparison with meditating can be incredibly useful. And, and I think here again, this is like a direct mirror of episode 11 that I did with Andy. This, this is so similar, but hopefully it's sort of different ways of saying the same things that will help people. When you look at all the ways in which meditation can deeply, deeply make life way more pleasurable, happy, peaceful, better mental health, um, more content. I think that surely there are not many people who can have doubts about why we would want to meditate. And if there are people who have doubts, there's so much academic literature on this, that the people's well-being, people feel better, they're happier, all kinds of reasons why meditation helps people. But, you know, even people who've meditated for years, still have to kind of really make themselves sit down and meditate. It, it takes serious mm -hmm. willpower sometimes to, to make yourself sit down and do it. You know, I know how much it improves my life. And actually, at the moment, I'm not a regular meditator and I need to make myself do it. And when I do it, I feel so much better when, when I've done it. And, uh, and I spoke about this in episode 11. It comes, we can explain it again with uh, help from the two brain hemispheres. The left brain hemisphere 
gets its happy brain chemicals from dopamine, which which is basically reward. We crave things and we become ambitious and we are basically we we basically feel we don't have enough of something we're dissatisfied about something and in a way you know this is what buddhism comes down to buddhism basically says that that suffering comes from a feeling of dissatisfaction with life and buddhism is the answer of basically happiness comes from figuring out how to uh, deal with that sense that everything is inherently dissatisfying. Now, in many ways, that is dopamine. That's what it does. And when we're dissatisfied, we, we uh, this chemical gives us this feeling of dissatisfaction and makes us do things in order to get rewards. We act, we do things so that we are rewarded. So we, so we work hard. And when we work hard, we get the fruits of our labors, Dopamine goes, well done, you've achieved this. And um, we feel good about ourselves. Or in that episode, I spoke about sex, drugs, rock and roll. That's sort of a a similar kind of thing. But it's basically a a sense of dissatisfaction, striving for something. We get that something, we feel happy, that's dopamine. Now, I think that when most of my students practice, that is basically the chemical that, that's driving everything. That's the feeling of happiness that they get. They get the feeling of happiness from, I want to be really good at this piece. I'm not good at this piece. I'm going to strive. Now I can play it. Now I'm happy. Unfortunately, that doesn't really work to, in a way that makes us really musical. It might work in a way that we can kind of play the notes in quite a mechanical way at home and go, I can play this now, but it completely crumbles under pressure. And that's why most people just fall apart under pressure. So now when we look at the right brain hemisphere, there, there are different brain chemicals involved, such as serotonin. The, uh, yeah, this is a massive overgeneralization, but it's still useful to sort of see practicing as existing between these two extremes, these two continuums. And I think to most people, you're either quite firmly really at one end or the other. So the other extreme that we can be at is that we have enough of everything. We're happy. We don't need anything. Everything is great. We can love ourselves because we're enough. The music is inherently pleasurable in its own right. If you think about this as sort of um, in terms of relationships, if we're in a happy relationship with a loved one, we don't need to do anything. We're just happy. We don't need to achieve. We don't need anything out of that person. We just are. We're, we're just in a state of being and we're just in a state of bliss, you know. Whereas um, let's say that, that we're a workaholic and we're striving to, to achieve something at work. It's a totally different state. And those are like the, the extremes of those two kinds of things. One is we are unhappy until we achieve our result. And then we achieve and we're happy, but then we want the next thing. Or we're, we're just happy. You know, think about for people who love cats, you know, just imagine sat with a cat on your lap. You're, you're just happy. You don't need anything. Or with a dog, if you're a dog person or, or whatever. They're, they're completely different kinds of chemicals. Now, what I'm saying is that we can cultivate that second way of being when we're learning a piece of music, where from the first moment that we are playing the first notes of a new piece, 
we have a cat on our lap. We're not trying to achieve anything. We're not immediately dissatisfied with what we're doing. Now, there is a balance because if I didn't have any of that dopamine, if I didn't have any of that striving and sense of dissatisfaction to want to be a brilliant pianist, I wouldn't sit down and start practicing it. No, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, if as human beings, we only had the right brain hemisphere, we'd just die <laughs> straight away. We wouldn't go and get food. And, uh, and actually, there are experiments Mm. where you, you can engineer rats and mice that literally don't have dopamine receptors. Uh, I, I don't condone this, by the way. I do not condone these kinds of scientific experiments. But they're out there and we can learn from them. And, um, and if you have uh, mice without dopamine receptors, um, if you put food literally just like another mouse length away from them, they'll just starve to death. But if you put it right by their, right by their mouth, they'll eat. So, you know, we, we actually need that sense of dissatisfaction to, to survive in this world. Otherwise, we don't do what we need to do to, to survive as human beings. But it's also very addictive, that state. Like, like addiction is literally driven by that same chemical, that same molecule in the brain. Uh, so, you know, anytime anyone talks in the media about uh, addiction they always go oh the same chemical that, that we have when we have cocaine well it's like well yes yeah, the same when we have cocaine but it's also the same thing that makes us want to get up off our seat and go and get food it's it's the same thing now but it's in, it's incredibly addictive and when we sit down and we practice the piano with a sense of i want to feel a sense of good enough because i'm not good enough I, I want to master this. I want to feel that I've achieved it and then I'm going to get the, the buzz from right. Now I can do it and before I couldn't do it. That's very, very addictive using the same chemicals that we have when people take cocaine. <laughs> so this is part of the reason why people find it so hard to stop that kind of way of practicing. And it's one reason why it's really difficult to motivate ourselves to sit down and meditate because meditate is the total opposite of striving to, to get something that gives us those reward molecules. Now, we live in a modern era where we can cheat our brains and have sugar. Sugar was not a thing that our ancestors could get. Sugar is like an immediate dopamine thing. Television, social media... All of the things that, that we become addicted to in our modern society, it's the, the, the society teaches us, be, get addicted to dopamine. Don't do wholesome things. <laughs> so feelings of wholesomeness, you know, that's kind of the opposite of, of dopamine. Now, what we want to do is we want to be wholesome pianists, <laughs> not addicted pianists. And, uh, you know, I, it's easier said than done because there are times when I'm practicing and I realize, oh, it's like I'm... I'm on the, the hamster wheel, I think, as one of my students put, puts it, because I was like describing the wrong kind of practice as being like, like um, rats in a cage, um, in Skinner cages. Um, listen back to previous episodes to, for, for what I mean by that psychologist um, Skinner, um, who did experiments. Um, we're, we're not just rats trying to press the correct levers for a reward. Um, um, actually, we spoke about that, didn't we, in one of the episodes? I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah, and anyway, you know, it's like, you know, um, like reward stimulus, reward dopamine. That's what we're like if we just sit down and try and hit all the correct notes. And then we get the dopamine and go, yeah, 
this is not good for us. That's not wholesome practicing. If we, from the very beginning, play the first note and go, how can I deeply love this? How can I deeply enjoy this experience? And that's really what these first four, um, and there will be more, by the way, but these first four of the most important psychological um, skills, th- these are things to take us in this wholesome direction of what we get when we learn to meditate, which is moving away from searching for stimulus, reward, stimulus, reward, and just, I just am, and everything's good. It, but it takes practice, because if it didn't take practice, people wouldn't meditate. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? That's very deep. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were talking, I was thinking about society, just uh, before you mentioned it, but that society just teaches you to go after the next dopamine hit. Yes. Uh, and it's it's in school as well. It's, you know, you need to pass yes. this exam to be, you know, labelled as good. You need to get that job. You need yes. to, you know, it, even when you're like taught, even it's not, you know, there's consumerism and everything. That's, that's you know, that dopamine hit. But there's also, you must get, you know, must pass your exams. You must get into a fancy university. You must get a fancy job. You must then get married you must then have kids you know it's mm. that, 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 that like your whole life is a massive checklist mm. and um i think a lot of people do go through that checklist to be like tick mm. i've reached that thing i am now good enough on that thing but then immediately society's like well, all right the next thing <laughs> you know and so it's it's not just in consumers it's actually really it's really ingrained in our society that we're yeah. not allowed to just be yeah you're not allowed to be at all yeah. Yeah. And I think as a young kid, intuitively, I understood this and I rebelled, mm. particularly with musical instruments. And coming back to self-determination theory, I had this deep inner felt sense that music could be this thing that I would end up on this treadmill, but that also I just knew I intrinsically deeply enjoyed it Mm. and I knew I could make a choice that I did this to enjoy it but I also recognized deep inside my my heart my chest my stomach I knew those feelings that came in when society was expecting me to do things but I recognized the physical sensations and I made the choice I'm not following that Mm. I'm I'm gonna choose to do this for I mean, I didn't know the words at the time, but but I chose to do it for intrinsic reasons because I deeply loved it. And I, I just stumbled, luckily, uh, as a kid, that, that I just knew those felt senses. And I knew that I could practice focusing on those things and not being compulsively pulled into the, the reasons why society was wanting me to do it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, coming back to intrinsic, extrinsic, all the research from self-determination theory and other psychological theories shows that when you're at a job or when you're studying for exams or, or anything, and, and even sports, I was looking at sports psychology last night, it's very, very, very clear that when your motivation, when your conscious thinking, uh, your reasons for doing something, so let's take, um, let's take uh, someone doing sports, when your conscious reason for doing it is to win and is to like be good and all those kinds of things you are not going to perform as well as someone who is doing it because they just inherently are enjoying it and this carries over into every single 
Um, no, most, because we spoke about this in one of those earlier episodes. Anything that is sort of more right-brained, anything that involves any element of creativity or any element of divergent thinking, uh, uh, basically things that demand skill, skill and divergent thinking, are going to happen so much better when we have intrinsic reasons for doing them. And I think as I went into, there are some quite interesting findings that if things are based on effort and based on just doing repetitive things over and over, then actually it's the other way around. But, you know, music is not one of those things. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember saying to people, you know, in the past, uh, they'd be very surprised that the reason why we're playing the piano deeply, deeply matters. And it's so interesting because, you know, in the world of sports, we've got the World Cup going on at the moment. So much money rides on the world of sports. And that's why um, so so many sports psychologists deeply, deeply study this because it, it, it's so lucrative. There's so much money, like absolute fortunes are, are made and lost through sports. And there are such strong findings that extrinsic motivation in sports um, negatively affects, certainly in skill-based sports, maybe not so much with effort-based sports like running, but yeah, yeah, you know, a lot of this is still in its infancy. Anyway, any any thoughts, Cheryl? You know, that's really interesting. I'm just thinking, who do I know that um, plays sports? I'm going to ask them those questions, like <laughs> how they feel, because I mean, I'm quite a competitive person. So in a fun way, I'm not a bad loser, because I, I, I lose a lot. <laughs> but I do like to try and win. If I'm playing something, I do like to try and win. Mm. But if somebody, if I speak to somebody who is really good at their sport, whatever that is, mm. do you mean something like rugby, football, that like skill level, tennis? That sort of those tennis sorts of certainly, and I I do find you know I, I mean, did we speak yeah. about this group previously? Versus one person, I find yeah. football very very interesting because uh, uh, oh gosh I'm going to possibly be quite controversial here. I'm not a fan of football. I just don't get it at all, <laughs> and I think part of the reason for that is that when I watch the football that I do watch, you can tell that all the people who are playing that's certainly English football. It's so extrinsic motivation. You can tell that, and certainly our media does, you know, all of the newspapers, our media does not help. It's like that there is so much pressure and you can see, and, and the footballers get paid obscene amounts of money, which, and, and, you know, there's so many findings in self-determination theory that the more you pay people and the more you reward people for doing things that are intrinsically enjoyable, the worse they perform. And so here you've got like one of the highest paid sports in the world with so much external pressure. And what I personally observe are just such ridiculously high levels of extrinsic motivation in what everyone's doing that it just doesn't interest me because people mm. are just, they don't seem to be intrinsically enjoying it. But then the very odd time, like I think some of the, um, let's say some of the South American countries when I do watch them play is much more intrinsic. You can tell that they're just enjoying football just just for the sake of it. Yeah. And then on the topic of football as well, you know, something that um, another reason why uh, I find it quite an interesting one uh, to look at. I'm very aware that in past years when England have been, you know, having really high pressure stuff like the World Cup, very publicly, the managers have brought in psychologists and people to sort of look at the, the state of mind of the players. And very publicly, the players just are massively resistant uh, to, towards this because there's this sort of real macho culture about it of like, why should we think about our, the, the, our state of mind? We, we just get on with it. 
Um, we're, we're not going to question why we do it. So, you know, they're, they're being paid millions. The media put all this pressure on them. Um, you can see that they're not playing for the inherent pleasure of it all. That's why they do so badly. Mm. <laughs> It'd be interesting because I think possibly overall you might be right there, but then there are some people who stand out and I'm thinking Cristiano Ronaldo. I'd love to have him sat, sat here because I think I think he's surpassed all of that. Mm. I, I, it would be interesting to see. He, I would imagine he... I mean, speaking for him now, but I don't mean to, but I would imagine... Off the pitch, he absolutely wants to win. Yeah, no question. Like he's yes. so competitive, and I, I get that. So, yeah, but I would imagine he's he's somebody who once he gets on the pitch, that whilst obviously the the goal is to score a goal and to make sure that they are winning, because obviously you are aware of that. But mm. when he's actually playing, whether that's actually in his head, bingo, bingo, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's it's what you pay attention to while you're doing the thing itself, and over and over again, sports psychology shows that if you're focusing on the self and not and on anything to do with the ego, you're not going to do as well. But mm. if you're, um, what do they call it, process-orientated or oriented, if you're focused on the process, you know, the game itself, the not winning, but the, the actual, the inherent enjoyment of the game itself, you're going to do better. Yeah. And, you know, I'm massively competitive. And wh when I perform... When when I'm not sat at the piano, I am massively competitive. I have huge amounts of ego. I want to be amazing. I have a lot of ego when when, when it comes to, to piano. I want to be bloody good. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't sit down and practice yeah. if I didn't have that. But the moment that I'm sat on the piano bench and my fingers are on the keys, I'm also practicing just focusing on love. I, I'm practicing letting go of all the ego stuff because also, you know, it's, it's, it's a paradox. Because I'm competitive and because I have a lot of experience in thinking about these things and being aware of these things and being curious about it all, I know that I play my best when I'm in certain states of mind. And so the competitive part of me that wants to be uh, the most amazing knows that if I practice in those states of mind, I'm going to play better. Now, it just so happens that those states of mind means that I have to practice letting go of my ego and my attachment to being really good. So I do that. I practice that for those reasons. Mm. <laughs> and there is a paradox to it. Yeah, yeah. That's why I practice it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I, you know, I don't literally then just go, nothing matters. And I'm just going to play and I'm good enough and yeah everything i do is already at the, because then i wouldn't feel motivated to keep on practicing there is a paradox to all of this i am driven but part of that drive is practicing the mindset where my felt sense experience and this is the important thing it's in the body it's in the felt sense that i'm practicing that in my body isn't feeling that so where is that that might be my goal that might be what i'm moving towards but I know that my entire experience has to be one of effortlessness, enjoyment, all that right brain hemisphere stuff. But somewhere in my mind, I still know that I'm competitive and I want to be bloody good at this yeah. thing. <laughs> but it's just that that's not the primary thing in that moment that's driving yeah. me because I just know it won't work. Yeah. It's focusing on it's focusing on what needs to be done in the moment. Exactly. Which yes. it, it's actually really difficult. So I've I've had this happen to me so many times when you're performing. Um 
you'll be in the moment, you started, you're in the moment, or you're getting into the moment kind of thing, and you're kind of there. And then all of a sudden, you'll kind of start thinking, oh, this is going well. I hope I can get to the end with the <laughs> with this sort of, um, you know, playing all the notes in the right place and everything. And then as soon as that thought comes in, you've made a hundred mistakes. It just all goes wrong. It's like your body, your brain just, I don't know, interrupts that, whatever. It, it's it's an, oh, yeah, it's yeah, incredibly yeah. annoying. Yeah. And we all have that. I mean, I don't think there's, I don't think there's ever been a time, ever, when I will have ever performed well and not had that thought as I get close to the to end. To the end, yeah. My God, it's all been going so well. Please, God. Please, God, don't make any there. mistakes before the end. <laughs> um, that, that thought will always be in there somewhere. Right. But like um, when we meditate, uh, in, in just classic meditation, the better we get at meditating, the more we can go, oh, there's the thought, and just not get attached to it. That's the point, isn't yes. it? Yeah. yeah. We'll always have that thought. Yeah. The trick is, can we ignore it? Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because at the moment, I'm like, oh, oh, you're right. I'm so close <laughs> to the end. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know. <laughs> and, um, and maybe as well, what can be really useful is to catch that sudden, quick step of the heart that we feel when we think yes. that. And if we can just notice the sensation and notice the thought and just come back to just loving the moment itself we can just quickly forget that that thought ever came into our yeah. minds but that is a practice and we can start practicing it by being aware of mm. every single thing we pay attention to as we're practicing which is skill number yeah. four for five minutes we're just going to be aware of this for five minutes now we're going to be aware of this for five minutes now you're going to be aware of that and that means that when you're performing under pressure we're much more likely that if we have a random thought, we can go, now I'm going to be aware of the melody rather than just being compulsively yeah. pulled into whatever our mind just gets yanked into. Exactly. Yeah. Really useful, that one. Yeah. So actually, I was thinking that we were probably going to do more playing and stuff. But but yeah, yeah, Cheryl played for us very, very briefly and demonstrated <laughs> very spectacularly, I think, oh, the, the, the difference that... Uh, <laughs> only just playing very casually very quickly with good enough and not good enough and bear in mind that was just like instantly and that wasn't really practicing over a period of time but you know this can be very very profound so any other questions or any thoughts on on like how this can be something that that you really take into every moment of your practice what what might be things that might get in the way of this Forgetting. <laughs> Apart from that, right? Does it make you? Let me ask you another question, yeah. actually, because okay. uh, for a while, I know that you lost your mojo. I think with practicing, you yeah, felt like I'm still getting and, back. And also, Cheryl's just moved house, so oh my god, you know that's <laughs> yeah, like that's the, one of the most the stressful things in life. So not just the stress, but it takes so much time and headspace. At the moment, are you practicing? Are you motivated? Or are you like? Ugh. <laughs> um I, honestly i'm still a bit uh. yeah. um well i went back to the piano meetup um the last time it was on oh yes yes, yes. and that was the first time i've been back since maybe the summer and since moving as well and um that really helped i was sat there thinking why am i not doing more of this so oh, that was great. a great help so i'm playing a little bit more but i'm still nowhere near what i was in the summer but partly because um i think once you've lost the kind of routine almost of practicing the piano and you come back 
and then you're you you're not you're playing the pieces that you were playing but they're not quite as good as where you would left them because obviously there's been like two months since you touched it kind of thing there's that that kind of puts you off a little bit but then also you're slightly bored and then you're a bit oh I don't want to pick up something else and then if you pick up something else then I find the energy to make myself learn it which is this is a very helpful podcast in this way because then all that effort Mm. no magic wand or whatever it just feels like oh yeah i'll do it tomorrow i'll do it tomorrow i'll do it tomorrow because the the left brain hemisphere (laughs) dopamine it's easier to get dopamine when you have instant gratification when the the longer away the the achievement is the harder it is to generate the dopamine for it but if we just sit down and just enjoy it for the sake of it, we bypass that whole system. Yeah, I think it's remembering that you, remembering because actually what ha- what does happen for me at least I'm quite lucky is that um, when I actually sit down and start practicing, time goes, time disappears. I can mm. be on it for an hour; it feels like five minutes. Mm. So when I'm actually on the piano, it's it's absolutely fine. But it the hard, it's almost the same with yoga. The hardest part is getting on your mat. The hardest part is yes. sitting down. Yes. The hardest part is opening your laptop to do whatever. You know, it, the yeah. hardest part is just starting. I don't know what it is in our brains. It just goes, mm. oh, what that is, I don't know. But it takes a lot to ignore yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly if you're already totally. feeling a bit uh, about it as well. So can can you see yourself then um, as a result of this podcast being much more excited to go practice? Um, definitely. I think what well, I'm certainly going to go to is listen to the other ones and <laughs> go backwards. Uh, three or four episodes, right? So, so yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I need to make some notes. I need to stick these these things onto the onto the piano. Just remind myself, right? I need to be. It's not so much that I want to be sat there thinking, oh, I need to heavily analyze these things whilst I'm playing. No, it's yeah. more of a reminder. Let's try and keep my head in this space yeah particularly with it's good enough i am enough i think that for me is the hardest one yes i think probably the most important one Mm. actually is that one yeah that you're good enough particularly for performance yes yeah sometime we'll talk more about that because there's so that that's such a deep oh it's i I mean that's huge i mean i think that underpins so many problems in society anyway that Mm. whole thing of not good enough yeah yeah, so yeah. yeah one more question Hopefully. Might might go into loads more questions, but for the moment, one more more question. I've started recently having a teacher again, and it's been quite a while since I've had a teacher. And then um, we we did lessons for Mm -hmm. a while. You you had lessons for a while. And um, I think before that, was it a while since you've had a teacher? Yeah, it'd been a couple of years. And then before that, it had been over 10 years. Yeah. Now, something that I think can be really challenging is to have this unshakable inner core of good enough when we're having lessons where every single lesson we're being shown all the things that need improving that's so true. but it doesn't mean that we're not good enough but <laughs> but if so we're true. not careful and I, I find that I'm having to practice this a lot that if we're not careful it can suddenly spill over into I'm not good enough <laughs> definitely definitely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, I, and I wanted to check was that something that was starting to affect you a little bit there were, I, uh, most of the time, no, but there were, I do remember there was one lesson where we had like that. And afterwards, the I just, yeah, yeah, I just yeah, felt yeah, yeah, completely yeah. just like, oh, why do I even bother? <laughs> why do I even bother? I just felt awful. And so I know that was not your intention. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I absolutely know that. So, but it, it is so hard yes. to come out thinking, no, no, I'm, I'm still good enough when you're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. You know, 
and you're like you've basically just torn you you feel like you've been torn apart on one bar the first bar and you you enter the lesson thinking i can at least play the first bar and you leave thinking i can't play the first bar <laughs> <laughs> so yes. it's that kind of uh, how on and, earth and, and we all experience it how do um, you get over that how do and you it's because we practice the moment that we come away from the lesson and even during the lesson and and i've I, I've been practicing this and I've realized how much I need to keep practicing this because, you know, I've deliberately gone to, to, to with a teacher on Zoom who to me is like one of the best pianists in the entire world. I've, I've gone to him for that reason. And because of that reason, if I'm not careful, every time I play, I'm like, well, I suck because <laughs> I'm yeah. comparing myself to, to them, you know. But well, there is uh, that too, the direct comparison. Yes. You know, and I, I get this with, with you quite a lot. So like, <laughs> yeah, I'll be like struggling with whatever it is that I'm trying to play, the Beethoven, this elegy, whatever. And um, even the way you just like play the notes, I'm like, how do you, how do you <laughs> even do that? I can't do that. And it's just, you've literally just gone... Even that's well, better than how I do it. You know, well, it's, it's what I mean. It's, it's the it's these first four psychological skills. That is how I do that. In in, in the way that makes you go, how well, what you hear there <laughs> is literally the thing that is in these first four psychological right. skills. If you practice these, you will get that. It is okay. that simple. Mm-hmm. I'm very very quickly going to just throw this in now. It's so relevant. This is going to be something I want to dedicate an entire future episode to, and I've mentioned it to Cheryl before. This is that the, I was reading this great article. I'm going to put a link um, uh, to the article in the show notes. There was an article that was talking about the scientific study, the academic study of advice giving in business. And it was talking about how basically, generally, the way that business works is it's hierarchical. There are managers. And generally, for the most part, managers need to give feedback to the people who work under them and for the most part this is has to sort of take the form of advice and people have studied in an academic way how people give and receive advice and so basically in a nutshell advice very rarely works for people who are receiving advice there generally are three stages the first stage is FU, as, as they put it, because it's like American um, yeah. academics who are usually quite colourful in their, the, the way that they do their studies. And I've certainly had some students along these lines, because basically what is, what is teaching a musical instrument if not just like constant advice giving? <laughs> so, and, and most people don't take advice very well. So, you know, it's very challenging. So the first stage that we can get stuck at is just basically defensiveness. Yeah. And I think most people who, who w- would take advice in that way don't last long as students (laughs) they disappear very quickly and then the second level that where most people this is where almost everyone gets stuck in the stage of receiving advice is i suck yeah yeah i totally relate to this you yeah i think yeah when we have lessons and if we're not careful it's so easy just to get stuck at i suck yeah which then comes very full circle to the skill of good enough. I remember all my life when I've had lessons, somehow I always just had an unshakable confidence of good enough, even when my teachers were like, and I see it in my, I have some young, like like young prodigies, you, you know, I have some young prodigy students and they do just have this unshakable good enough. Like sometimes I'm really pointing out all the things that, you know, this, that, that, but 
no, there's, there's just an unshakable good enough. And I'm going to argue that's partly why they're prodigies. <laughs> it's mm. unshakable. And, it, and also there's a sense of they don't care if other people are saying, well, because they enjoy what they play. There's a sense of enjoyment and they're good enough. Now, we can cultivate this. We can practice it. I, I absolutely believe this. But, yeah, in a future podcast episode, I might, I might spend a whole episode just talking about how we can um, talk about the, the science of receiving and, and giving advice so that we don't just get stuck in I suck. <laughs> It's a good. It's a good idea, actually. Yeah, that would be a very, very good one. Because I think, I think, I certainly would. I get stuck in. I'm. I suck. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, because it never spills into. Apart from talking about it today, I never think to myself, "Oh, I need to go away and then think I'm good enough." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because I mean, you know, as a, as a teacher, I'm always, always doing my best to communicate as deeply as I can in every way that I can that whoever I'm teaching is inherently good enough and and I'm always because you are I'm not just always saying this to you to to say it but you are deeply musical when you play I do really feel it um and when you perform everyone says oh you're, you're really good and they're not just saying it you you are and and I always want my um students especially when it genuinely really is that deep you're you're super musical and so everything that I teach I'm always wanting to but we sometimes we just can't help that that we, we just instantly internalize not good enough, no matter what we do as teachers. That's yeah. so difficult. So this is something I'm going to talk about in the future episode. No, definitely. But just one small thought just uh, linked to this is that you've just given me some very nice compliments. <laughs> Thank yes. you very much. But linked to not good enough is I don't believe you. But I will believe this yes. person who comes and tells me I'm not good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Like I find it so hard to accept that you think that I'm musical. My brain is going, no, 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 no. He's, he's... I know you're not lying. Because yeah. why would you do that? That that would be mean, <laughs> right? That would just be ridiculous. Well, some, some people, some people say it so, to build confidence in people, but but I I try and build confidence in my students in other ways. I always tell the truth. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I know you. I've known. I know you long enough now to know yeah. that kind of thing. So I know you're telling me the truth, but still, the way that my body is receiving it, body yes. and brain, is uh, I can feel it that. going. You you practice, no. and you can practice the opposite. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be continued. To be continued, yeah. definitely. So, yeah, anyway, um, ho hopefully uh, that was uh, very interesting to everyone who was listening in. And uh, I do encourage everyone to uh, subscribe to the podcast and uh, like the podcast, leave comments, uh, all the things that helps the channel to grow. By the way, I think in future episodes, uh, I'm going to start reading out some of the very nice comments that people have been leaving. They're always really appreciated. I, I don't talk about that enough, I think. So um, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, uh, subscribe to know when the future episodes come out. Uh, we will see you uh, uh, at the next uh, podcast episode. So thanks very much for tuning in and uh, take care. Goodbye. Bye.